listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and then suddenly everyone left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with people working in the grief field. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofero, and produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. When someone dies, we often discover things about them that we didn't know before. And sometimes those things can be really mundane, like finding out that your dad didn't really like chocolate. But sometimes there's huge revelations that alter your entire perspective, both on the person and the life that you shared with them. For today's guest, author Jan Canty, what she discovered about her husband after he was murdered changed everything, leaving her both in shock and angry. Now, 30 years after her husband's death, Jan is working on a book entitled Till Death We Did Part, a memoir of deception, murder, and recovery. Hi, Jan. Welcome to the show. Hello, and thank you for having me. Before we dive into some of the topics that we're going to be talking about, particularly what it's like to be grieving when your feelings about the person who died can be extremely mixed and that there can be a lot of anger and betrayal, can you talk just briefly about your story? My husband was a psychologist, and we were married 10 years. From my perspective, they were good years. He was very supportive of my goal to become a psychologist as well. However, towards the end of our 10 years, I did not know. He didn't come home one night, and it was not like him at all. And what came out of that was I was in contact. First, I reported him missing. And then I was in contact with the Detroit Police Department. And through them, I learned that he had had a secret life for the past previous 18 months. In that time, he had given them $150,000 in uh, 1985 dollars, which is, translates to over 350000 currently. He bought them cars. He bought this particular people, John Fry and, and Dawn Marie Spence. He bought them cars and groceries and all kinds of things. He, in addition, even gave them photos of the interior of our house and obviously put himself and myself in danger. When he was murdered because he would not give them more, I became concerned for my own life, and it was a very public spectacle. So during the grief process, not only was I dealing with trying to wrap my head around this person who I thought I knew, but it, it all occurred right before the public's eye on radio and television. So as you're scrambling to understand what happened, it's getting broadcast to the entire country. Yes, and in addition to that, as he's getting revered and isn't that very sad what happened, in the beginning at least, I was just dumbfounded and and felt very violated, very um, uh, betrayed by him. How did that um, play out just in the, like the everyday, I'm imagining like in the first few days, first few weeks after your husband dies, there's friends and family and people Mm. reaching out to you and offering condolences and sympathy. How did that work? It was awful. 
on the one hand, I knew that their intentions were good. They wanted to help me, but I didn't feel like anybody could help me. I didn't feel nobody understood. I felt exhausted. I mean, I hadn't, because he'd been missing for a week, I hadn't hardly slept. It was like I was living somebody else's life, like I had stepped into this vortex that was a mess with very little anticipation of what should I do. So it was a very baffling time. I was very tired. I was very scared because even the police told me they weren't sure they had everybody involved. And so it was a very unnerving time. It was a time of um, utter confusion. And I'm I'm thinking about you know, your husband being missing for a week and being in that place of panic and wondering and fear for him. And then to find out what happened and to find out he's living this totally different life. Right. Like the, for the anger to come in and the feelings of betrayal and how mm-hmm. to make sense of all of that. I was, I, I, and I did not make sense of it for quite some time, primarily because I had so many unanswered questions. The police didn't have time to sit me down and sort it out. It was like a jigsaw puzzle with a lot of pieces missing. And I, I was trying to piece it together, but there were so many fires to put out too that distracted me from trying to understand Bill's legal issues, his practice of his patients, my practice of my patients. It's like I kept having to postpone un- taking time to understand it because it just wasn't on the front burner for a while even though I knew I had to do it eventually. So many people talk about that, like the bureaucracy that comes along when somebody dies and all of the details that need to be attended to. And then yours had these added layers of danger and police involvement and legality as well. That's correct. There is quite a bit of entanglement bureaucratically. And the police, I don't fault them. They did a fairly good job with me. I really think they went out of their way, in fact, for me. But it it was ugly. I mean, the things that they sat me down to explain and the fact that I had to go to the morgue and identify him. And uh, the media was extremely intrusive. They showed up at the memorial service, even though I had made repeated requests of the undertaker not to let them in. They did. And they had these big old video cameras that they put on their shoulders. And eventually, I just left early. I just ducked out a back door and went home. They also showed up at the morgue. And then you'd go home and it would be on the news. It was just awful. They really were very insensitive and complicated things to the point where even two years later, it hadn't died down enough. And I ended up leaving Michigan altogether. The way I describe it is I I began to lead a redacted life. I edited what I said. I changed my last name back to my maiden name. I stopped doing clinical work and went into teaching. And I deliberately chose a job that was in the middle of nowhere. I just wanted to escape it and did a fairly good job of it for a long time. And and in that process of, you know, getting through the frenzy and the sort of melee of the initial few weeks and months and even years and then moving away when you did have some time and space to maybe touch into the grief how did you experience it how did you think about it i was furious i was 
I'm not a typically an angry person, but I, I got so angry that I was irrationally angry. I admit that now looking back. For example, I go in the grocery store and I think, how come they only have loaves of bread for family size? Why don't they have loaves of bread for one person? Or somebody would open the door for me if I had my hands full on. I'd think, what do they think, I'm weak? I mean, it was just everywhere. It spilled out onto innocent people that had no connection with this. And I'm not saying they always even knew I was that angry, but I was seething a lot of the time, which interfered in my sleep and interfered socially with, I didn't want to be around anybody. And there was no place to deal with that because the person who caused you all this is gone. You can't sit down and say, hey, you owe me an apology and an explanation. That's over. There's no hope for that. So there's no place to discharge that anger and that hurt that comes with the betrayal. So when people would say, I'm so sorry for your loss, it would just grate on my last nerve because I wanted to say to them, why? Why are you sorry for my loss? I'm not sorry. Look at what he did to my life. Look at how he endangered his patients. Look at how he exploited his mother's money, in addition to our own, to support these two people that, in the end, killed him. I don't have a void in my life because of it. I don't wish him back. You were needing a place and people to talk about that anger with and talk about that betrayal, and people were coming at you with the expectation that you would be you know, a quote unquote stereotypical grieving widow. Right. It was, it was like no pleasing me because on the flip side of it, my parents and my sister were as angry at him as I was. How could he do this? And that bothered me too because... <laughs> You're like, it's my anger to have. Well, that and, it, and I, it wasn't like our entire marriage was bad. It was good in many ways. And like I said, it wasn't rational and I wa- there was no pleasing me. I think... What I really needed but didn't get is to have someone calmly sit down and say, boy, if I was in your shoes, I would be really confused and I would be really angry at what's going on around you. But nobody said that to me. They either avoided me or they would give me these platitudes, both of which I didn't want. Yeah. So for someone to just acknowledge the complexity of what you were facing. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So you talked a lot about you know the anger that you had and and I I really appreciate that idea of the the term conflicted grief. I think that really captures a lot of what people who maybe had a relationship with somebody who died that was ambivalent or challenging in some way, and they don't have a lot of ways to talk about the grief that they're feeling of maybe some sense of anger at that person or relief, but also grief. What are the ways that you've found to discharge some of that anger or to start to piece together what had happened? Well, it was a gradual process. Um, I think in the, in the very early weeks and months, I discharged my anger by getting organized. I got the house prepared to sell. I had his offices to clean up, his records to sort out. And then I think the other thing that helped was when I finally was able to sell the house, which took quite some time, because at at that time in history in Michigan, if there was any violence connected with the owner of a house, even if it did not occur on the property of the house, you had to disclose that to potential buyers in the case, and that devalued the cost of the house. So I finally got away from the house, 
and that helped too to kind of feel like well at least I've got some corner of my life under control but it was not a steady progressive thing I mean I remember one night I went out with friends we wanted to go see a movie and it involved a murder scene, which we, I did not know it going to be in this movie, a murder scene that was like what happened to my husband. I just had to leave the theater. It, and, and they didn't quite understand. I mean, they had superficially understood, but they were able to sit through it. And I couldn't. And I don't, I don't think they got it. And, and so sometimes it would be like two steps forward and one step back, where I couldn't really integrate myself back socially for a long time. And I also, I was really tired of being treated like a widow. So I thought, if I'm ever going to get past all this, I've got to leave and start over. And that's when I think I really began to feel better. So my point being that in the very beginning, this, I don't know, secrecy or this denial of everything was necessary to cope. But after 20 or 30 years, it ceased to be so effective. Mm. And I gradually had to undo that and back out of it and retrain myself to step up to the plate. And, and it was hard because I didn't know what to expect. Yeah. What has it been like to start coming more forward with your story and now working on this book and planning to you know, share your story with the whole world in that way? So far, so good. I'm, I must say that I, people have been very supportive. I can't explain why if, why it's been so good, but I've been pleased at the response I've had from people as I begin to pull down my guard and, and speak more freely. Uh, for example, I just changed healthcare providers, physicians, and on the questionnaire for the new patient, it said, you know, how many times have you been married? Circle number divorces, circle if you've been a widow, and I circled it, and it said cause of death. And in the past, I would have left it blank. And this time, I didn't. There is something about forms at medical offices that seems to be like one of the hardest parts for folks. When someone in their life dies, it's like you go along and you're you're like integrating it into your life, but then you get to the doctor's office and you have to write all that stuff down. Yeah, if somebody has three children and one of them died, you gotta go. Oh well, I had three and now I have two and. Because I never wanted pity. I never wanted that. And that's one thing I guard against. I, that just like is like nails on a blackboard. Like, do not pity me. <laughs> Listeners out there, if you do run into Jan at a book signing at some point, <laughs> don't pity her. <laughs> no, I don't like that. <laughs> you know, Jan, I know isolation was a big part of your, you know, initial experience with your husband's death and feeling so alone because there was nobody else who could relate since you've been more public with your story, have you connected with other people who have had a similar experience? Um, I've connected with people who have been survivors of violent crime. Yes, I've had people whose daughters have died or husbands have died. And it shouldn't surprise me, but I've discovered that there's a lot of parallels in how they healed and how they initially responded but some of the differences, I think, were some of the people I ran into had a much worse time than I did in terms of the legal system. I mean, for example, nobody suspected I was involved mm. and nobody questioned my, my background, like, well, why were you where you were at that time? It wasn't anything like that. Whereas people I've met with who got tangled in the, in the court system or if they had a, process, um, a defense attorney 
who was extremely vigorous in the defense and was very was not supportive to the family. It came off as justifying the behavior. They had a worse time than I did. So everybody's a little different, but there are parallels. And I had not thought about much about that until I kind of came out of the shadows. Yeah, it can be sort of amazing that, you know, each of our experiences is so unique because the relationship we had with the person who died was unique just to the two of us. Mm-hmm. And then to, when you start talking to other people who are grieving, that there can be some of those connecting points. Are there other aspects of violent death or a murder that you think stand out? In my experience, one of the things that what had happened to me was nobody wanted to touch me. Nobody hugged me. And it might have been my posture too, like don't touch me. I don't know. I can't, it's hard to be objective that way. That was a strange thing. Um, people did not make eye contact as much as I would have hoped that they would have. And they were obviously lost for words. And as I said, people treated me as if I was broken. And just like there's this big elephant in the room and nobody's talking about it, including myself. And also I was very, very exhausted. And But I don't think that's unique to violent murder. I think anybody who survives a death of somebody close to them uh, is very, very tired. And that lasted a long time for me because I couldn't sleep. Yeah, there's something spectacularly fatiguing about grief. Tell us a little bit about the book that you're working on and and some of your hopes for how it will maybe help you or help others. My main goal, my main hope, what will come from it is that I can contribute to the discussion that I think needs is lacking, which is what is it like for the surviving families or spouses or children of people who die violently. Because since about 1960s, there's been hundreds of books and lots of movies published and and produced that kind of follow murderers, sometimes even glorify them. Uh, and And even, it seems like every serial killer even has a biographer. And yet there's only a handful of books that look at the murder from the victim's perspective. And America's fascination with murder has, as a result, left the victims and of the, the survivors in the shadows, and I think makes it even more important for them to seek comfort in one another. That's my intention of writing this book, is to say, this is what it's like behind the headlines. This is what it's like to try to cope with this for 30 years. Just because it falls off the headlines doesn't mean it's gone. I mean, if you think about TV series like Dexter, or if you think about the movie Helter Skelter, we don't know anything about their family members. Mm. We know about the victims and we know about the perpetrators, but they don't live in a vacuum. And I'm not saying that's totally at fault from the media. I think some people like myself are also withdrawn at the time. I, I couldn't have done it at the time. So there's this mutual pulling away and pushing away that goes on. But the bottom line is we don't know a lot. We as a society don't know a lot about the aftermath for families. So I think I can write about it and hopefully shed some light on the particular notion of conflicted grief because you just don't find that in workshops, books, greeting cards. Yeah, there's definitely no conflicted grief section in the condolence card aisle. No. no. <laughs> Maybe one day after your book comes out, we will have more opportunities for people to speak to the breadth of experience that happens for people who are grieving. 
Well, Jan, I really appreciate you being on the show today, telling us a little bit about your story and you know, giving us a preview of what's to come for your book. How can listeners find out when it's going to be available? How should they just sort of track what's happening? Probably the best way is to, if they're using Facebook. I have a Facebook page that is goes by the title. So it would be Till Death We Did Part. Also, I have a website jancantyphd.com and I'll be posting updates there as well. And listeners, I'll put all of those um, places to find Jan on our show notes today. Jan, thanks again for being part of the show. Jana, thanks for having me very much. I appreciate it. And listeners out there, thank you for being part of the audience. If you are new to our show, you can find all of our previous episodes on our website, dougy.org, or anywhere that you happen to get your podcasts. The other exciting news is we are coming up really quickly on our 100th episode, which is just hard to imagine, and we would love to include you in that episode. If you are a listener and the show has meant something to you, send me a quick voicemail or an email. I'd love to just include how the show has affected you. You can find us at help at Thanks again for listening. Hope you'll join us again next time.